week, Gareth kicked us off. We're looking at four gardens throughout uh, the Bible, starting at the Garden of Eden, ending in the final sort of garden of eternal life. Um, and so this week, our speaker is Rachel Cox. Rachel um, joined um, the uh, joined, moved to the Bay um, during lockdown with her husband Simon and their three daughters. And um, I got put in touch with Rachel through, through a mutual friend. We did a Zoom call. I can't remember when that was, back in 2020 or something. Or uh, We had a little Zoom call to say hi and and you guys felt like um, they wanted to be a part of this church and help us plant this church so they've been here from the beginning um, Rachel is actually sort of the, the the main thinker behind this series I sort of messaged Rachel and said I'm thinking of doing a series around gardens and hope and have you got any she's like I've just finished my own personal study on gardens in the Bible and gave me all these ideas and it helped really shape uh, what we're doing so really excited Rachel's really insightful has a lot of wisdom particularly wisdom around sort of the the prophetic um, and things of the spirit. So I'm really excited to hear from her. So would you please welcome Rachel as she speaks to us. Oh gosh, so much stuff in my hands here. Brilliant. Well, yes, good morning. I'm Rachel. I've got a bit of a sore throat this morning, so if I take a sip of water, please forgive me as we go through. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm originally from Devon. I am from Dawlish, and um, I think I'm now on my 30th ever home. And I know, it's a lot. So I'm going to talk today, and I, you're here, I'll say, oh, I lived here, and oh, I lived here. Well, I've lived in a lot of places. Um, and apparently Rachel actually means a ewe, like a sheep, a female sheep. Uh, and so I kind of take that as a prophetic sign because sheep are inherently nomadic mothers. Um, so I, I definitely feel like a nomad myself, but it's good to be home back in Devon. Um, so this month, um, three years ago, I quit my job. I was in a, I was in a job, and um, I had for some time I'd been wrestling with should I give up this job. It was a really badly paid job, and I really felt like God was nudging me to quit my job. Anyway, He was nudging me for about a year before I finally relented and quit my job. And the main thing that I was really struggling was the fact that I was really, really afraid that if I quit my job and started a business, that I wasn't gonna have enough money to pay my bills. And I was also afraid of failure. I was afraid that people wouldn't book us. I run a design agency. And um, so anyway, we were, we were really sort of grappling with that. Anyway, I, I finally quit my job. And in the space of five days, we had secured a contract. Uh, it was a two-month contract, and it was enough to cover my annual entire salary from this job that I had just left. So I'd agonized and agonized. And in all of that, I felt like God was saying, will you just trust me? Trust me, please. And so often I think that we can be guilty of making our own choices rather than trusting in the Messiah in the embodiment of God's glorious word and his marvelous presence. And we forget that actually the God of the universe can influence our lives uh, and be interested in our choices day to day. Well, I do anyway. So this morning I want to talk about trust and how trust in Jesus leads to a life in all its fullness. Jesus calls us all to follow him, to remain in him, and trust in him so that we can live life to the full. 
And if we lack trust or struggle with doubts and wrestling, Jesus demonstrates to us that he makes a way back for us to trust in him and to follow him. So today's talk, we're going to be based in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, which can be found in John's Gospel in chapter 18. And in order to understand what's going on in that passage, we're actually going to zoom out and we're going to actually have a look at briefly an overview of the whole of the Gospel of John. I want to talk briefly about how it's sort of put together so that we can really understand what's happening in that moment when Jesus finds himself in the garden. Throughout the Bible, authors have paired lives and stories for repetition. We're going to see that a lot today. And um, when I was six, I lived in South Wales, and I absolutely loved a good memory game. Any other guys out there like pairs, games, yeah, snap, all of that, yeah. And um, when I was six, I entered a competition called the Kim's Game. I don't know if you've heard of it, um, but you have a tray. There's 20 items that you put on the tray. You've got a minute, and you've got to remember everything on the tray, and then you've got to recall them. And then as you go through, they take an item off, and you've got to remember which one's gone. Anyway, I absolutely loved it. Uh, so much so, I was put in this competition. And um, I got all the way to the finals for Wales, and I was so proud of myself. Anyway, I got there, and I just missed out. I was the runner-up. And I was absolutely gutted. But my consolation prize was that the awards that day were being presented by Rosemary Ford off the Generation Game. So I don't know if any of you out there remember the Generation Game, but I absolutely love the Generation Game. And I think there is a slide, in case you don't, there we go, who wants a cuddly toy? Um, so anyway, I met Rosemary and I, I, uh, my six-year-old self glowed as I got to hold her hand as, uh, at the end and I got presented with my award and uh, it was brilliant. Anyway, for me, the way the Bible's put together can sometimes feel a bit like Kim's game. There's lots of ingredients, lots of stuff. It's on the tray, and then you've got to remember all of those little pieces. And, um, yeah, sometimes it can also feel like those card pairs. Sometimes you'll turn a card over and you'll think, oh, that seems familiar. Maybe I've seen that somewhere before. And um, so the Eden story is a bit like a memory game, and we see it right at the beginning of the Bible. We've got Eden, and that's your first card pair. And then throughout the rest of the Bible story, there's lots of other gardens that keep cropping up. And it's because it's a bit like a game of card pairs. And we're meant to see these little flourishes and motifs throughout the whole of Scripture. So we're introduced to this idea of a garden way back in Eden. And um, in ancient Near Eastern culture, gardens were really, really important, significant places. They're spiritual places, and they're charged with this kind of divine meaning. And they were places of abundance, prosperity, and they were places that gods and kings lived. So it's no surprise that the start of our Bible starts with this idea. And last week, Gareth talked to us about a key event that happened in the Garden of Eden that would set humanity on a course that we weren't intended for because sin entered in to this idyllic place. Because humans made a choice, and that choice was to choose to have knowledge and power on our own terms rather than trusting in God. And through this rebellion, humans forfeited our chance to eat from the tree of life, which means we would get to live for eternity causing us to have banishment from the garden. And this posed an absolutely massive problem 
because God had to separate himself for us because of the sin. And it was all down to a lack of trust in what God had said and the fact that he wanted us to have a good relationship with him. So the problem enters the story in a high place, in a garden, through a tree, okay? And then throughout the rest of the Bible, we can read about people being tested in high places, in gardens, and by trees. And we see it time and time again. They might not always look like a garden, but there's vegetation all around, and they are a form of garden. We see it with Abraham. We see it with Moses, David, and Noah. And sometimes they passed a test, but I heard it once said that in the Bible, the good times last two pages, and then it all goes wrong. But God promised right back in Genesis 3 that there would be one who would come to undo the wrongdoing of what had happened in Eden. He would live without sin and without blemish, and he would pass the test. He would choose correctly. And the Bible's always pointing to the fact that it's going to happen on a high place, in a garden, on a tree. And the point is so that we can rule and reign in the garden once more, where God will give us the gift of eternal life. So we're going to look a little bit at the context of Gethsemane this morning. Um, So in the book of John, the first 12 chapters outline Jesus' ministry. And it concludes, I don't know if you can see that, it might be a bit small, I apologize. But um, the first 12 chapters outline his ministry and all of these miraculous acts. And it ends with him raising Lazarus from the dead. And Jesus makes huge claims about himself that he is the reality to which Israel's entire future and, and, and history will point. And then we've got John 13 to 17. And those short chapters there are all about the night that Jesus is with the disciples. It's the Last Supper. And those are his final words to his disciples as he tries to prepare them for his coming death. Then we've got John 18, which is where we're in the garden. 20 and 21 is the crucifixion and resurrection. And then I'm going to call it the beach breakfast, which sounds like a bay thing to me. Uh, John 21. So the chapters that come immediately before John uh, 18, 13 to 17, are a bit of a masterclass on what the Christian life is going to be like for those who follow Jesus. So it starts with Jesus washing the disciples' feet, and he outlines this idea of servanthood and obedience. And then John 14 begins with a comforting phrase that says, let not your hearts be troubled. And Jesus talks about access to knowing the Father and also the Holy Spirit. In John 15, Jesus tells us, it's going to be hard, but stay present, stay with me, stay connected. And he tells his followers to love one another. Then John 16, have peace in a world of trouble. Things are not always going to be easy. In fact, sometimes they're going to be really tough. And then he concludes John 17 by telling his disciples, I am with you. So Jesus ends this section with this absolutely beautiful prayer and prays that his disciples and believers will be united as one and that as followers of Jesus, we'd remain in him with access to the Father. And it's a a conversation that outlines what the disciples can expect and how they should live. But the theme throughout all of those chapters is trust me. I trust you and I'm with you. 
And Jesus tells them to trust him and asks them to trust him because sometimes things can get a bit uncomfortable. And in John 15, uh, Jesus talks about pruning. And he says this, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither you can bear fruit unless you remain in me. So around 11 years ago, I was living in the Ardèche, which is in the south of France. And the town we were living in was on the Côte de Rhône uh, region. It was on the Rhône River, and it was very nice. <clears throat> and we lived there for two years. And throughout that time, we witnessed what it was like to live near a vineyard. Okay, now I, I do enjoy a glass of red, and it was great for that. So uh, vines are actually pruned throughout the whole year, basically, pretty much. And vine dressers, I might also just call them a gardener, okay, they walk in the vineyard daily, and they never, never stop. They're always busy. They're always tying in vines. They're always pruning, snipping bits off, tying things in, checking for disease, checking there's no pests on those vines. Checking the structure is okay. Checking the support uh, that the, the vines can be they're not going to be too heavy and weighed down. And it's all done so that the vines can produce the biggest, juiciest, most delicious grapes. So in this passage, which talks about pruning, it will be really easy to read pain and punishment into Jesus' words, especially when it comes to the idea of pruning in our own lives, because cutting stuff off sounds really painful, doesn't it? And it sounds a little bit like spiritual amputation. But God isn't on a vendetta to lop bits off us, chunk, uh, cut chunks out of us and toss, toss stuff in our lives on the compost heap unnecessarily. He prunes fruitful and unfruitful branches alike. And it's all to do with this, to encourage fruit, growth, health and stability. Because left to itself, vines actually produce a lot of green growth. And it's really unproductive. Tendrils grow so fast, and although greenery is really nice, the whole purpose of a vine is to produce beautiful grapes. So the gardener wants the energy to go into fruit rather than growth. The vine and branch picture emphasizes that we need to be continually connected in to Jesus. And it shows us that if we consider ourselves to be followers of Jesus, we need to be connected in, not out, on our own. And it's a picture of a healthy, thriving community. The vine image is a picture of togetherness, the church growing out from Jesus, the main stem, who supports us and keeps us rooted. And the vine is tended to by the gardener, and Jesus says that this is the Father. And Jesus teaches his disciples and us that we can trust him, despite these moments of pruning, that he's completely trustworthy and that he's always with us. And the pruning is a necessary part of cultivating a life of hope in him. So that's the surrounding chapters, 13 to 17. But what about the Garden of Gethsemane itself? I'm going to read um, a bit now from chapter 18, and I'm going to sort of cut through various different um, bits. So it's not the whole section, although I've outlined that, but you can follow along if you've got your Bible here. 
When Jesus had finished praying, he left his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. And on the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. I just want to note here that a detachment is about anywhere between 300 and 600 soldiers. So there was a lot of people that had come to the garden. And they were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am, Jesus said. When Jesus said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachments of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus to the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back and spoke to the servant girl on duty there and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold and the servants and officials stood round a fire they'd made to keep warm. Peter was also standing with them, warming himself. Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself, so they asked him, You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, relatives of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Jesus is in the garden, and in this moment of suffering, his faith and trust in God is being tested. And in life, I think we can often know things in our head, but actually, unless we feel them in our heart as well, it's hard to walk in a way that makes absolutely no logical sense. And I don't think things are making sense to the disciples. Now, personally, I don't always get things right. I'm not always obedient. And when the stakes are high, I can find it really, really difficult to trust God. And I shared a little bit about my reluctance to quit my job, despite what I felt God was saying me at the start. Even though God had proved himself to me, like countless times before, and had come through for me and provided for me when I needed him, I still found it really hard to listen. And in the garden, it's not just Jesus that we see in this test. In John's Gospel, Jesus is depicted as powerful, majestic, in control, who with a word knocks hundreds of soldiers off their feet to the floor. But all around him, the disciples are panicking. They're crumbling and they're even getting into fights. So we can see Jesus who's fully trusting in God. And then conversely, we see the disciples who are afraid and absolutely filled with doubt. So Jesus has just spent those five chapters on the, you know, when they're having the Last Supper. And he says, it's not always going to be easy. It's not always going to go the way that you think it's going to. There's going to be tests, but I'm with you. 
And in this moment of testing, despite the fact that Jesus is with them in the garden, they don't seem to understand that he's helping them and he's with them and that things are going to be okay. Jesus is asked who he is and he replies, I am, with full authority. And I am means the deliverer, the God who's present with and for his people and the one who goes ahead. It's the name he gives himself when he speaks, God speaks to Moses. And then we see Peter, and he's asked who he is. Do you know Jesus? And he says, I am not. I'm not, not a follower, not a friend. I'm not anything to do with that man. And Jesus makes no effort to hide. He's in the middle of the Garden of Gethsemane. It says that Judas knows he's going to be there. So he makes no effort to hide himself. But the disciples in the hours following all flee and start to hide. Jesus chooses to willingly go to cross. He, he overpowers everybody, but then he still goes with them. He doesn't resist. Instead, he gives himself up for his friends. But the disciples run and hide. Earlier that night, Peter had actually said to Jesus, I will lay down my life for you, Lord. And then we see him instead warming himself in front of these flames in front of a charcoal brazier. And he's thinking through the events of that night. And he's asked three times if he knows Jesus and he denies him. And just before the cockerel crows, he remembers that Jesus had said, you will deny me three times this night. And Peter goes away weeping because of it. And he's got the smell of the fire and the aroma of the smoke on his clothes clinging to him and reminding him of his betrayal. And now by this point, Jesus had spent three years with his disciples, teaching them, encouraging them, demonstrating how to live. And in the space of one night, they're tested and they fail. But we learn that Peter is just an ordinary guy. He's kind of like you and me, isn't he? But actually, he goes on to do really extraordinary things. And on this night of testing, he reveals that he's human, that he's flawed, and that he fails sometimes. And here are a few of the things that happen that really resonate with me, and perhaps they will with you too. So Peter denies knowing Jesus. Sometimes it's easier to deny than to stand out. It can be scary to stand out or to stand up for what we believe. Peter resorts to violence. He lashes out in fear and he cuts someone's ear off. And sometimes when we're afraid, we can resort to violence rather than peace. And violence comes in many forms. Physical, emotional, psychological, verbal. And Jesus calls us to go in the way of peace and to love one another. Not to wield power over others, but to live in trust with one another. In the days after the crucifixion, the disciples go back to their old jobs and their old ways. We see them later, they've gone back to fishing. And sometimes in life it can be easier, can't it, to go back to our old ways, our old habits, things that we used to do, whether or not they're good for us. Familiar things are sometimes comforting. So the disciples go fishing one night and catch nothing. And they don't invite God into their work. But as soon as they do... God changes everything. So we come to John 21. I'm going to skip the crucifixion and resurrection. I'm going to go straight for breakfast on the beach. Gareth's going to talk about that next week, I think. 
Uh, but yeah, Peter has abandoned his walk and way of life as a disciple. He's gone back to fishing. And uh, one morning, Jesus is on the beach. And the disciples see him. And Peter jumps out of the boat to get to the shore to reach Jesus. And Jesus is there. He's got breakfast cooking, bread and fish. And it's over a charcoal brazier. Pair of cards. You can picture the scene. Peter is soaking wet, dripping water onto the beach. And the smell of smoke is mingled with the fish and the bread. And it's getting right in his nose. And he remembers. He remembers that charcoal fire on that terrible night that he denied Jesus. And in that moment, he knows that Jesus knows what he did. But Jesus is full of grace and love for Peter, and he gives him breakfast besides that fire. And Jesus restores him to the role of disciple, and he also makes him leader of his church. And where the smell of smoke perhaps brought memories of sin, guilt, and shame... Jesus gives Peter grace and mercy. And it's a really beautiful moment of redemption because Peter had wrestled and failed in his last test and denied Jesus. But Jesus makes a way back into relationship with him. Peter isn't cut off. He isn't cast aside for the mistakes or lack of trust. Instead, again, Jesus gives him another test. And the test is will you trust me? Because Jesus tells Peter what his life will look like and that he'll even die in the same manner that Jesus did. That's a test and a half, isn't it? And his final words to Peter are, follow me. Follow me. And Peter does follow. He does trust. And Peter's life does unfold exactly as Jesus said it would. So Jesus calls each one of us, me and you, to follow him and to trust him, even when things are really tough or perhaps don't go as perhaps we've planned them. It might be that you're here today and you're not sure that you want to commit to Jesus or put your trust in him. And whether you know Jesus personally or not, he has and will make a way for us to know him. And he offers us the chance to put our faith and trust in him. You see, we're all so precious to God, so precious, in fact, that Jesus was sent to earth to undo what had happened in the Garden of Eden and to restore our relationship to the Father through a sacrificial act on a high place, in a garden, on a tree. So that we can all have life and have it to the full. Amen.